If you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18, we're going to continue in our study entitled, The Kingdom Belongs to the Little Children. Tonight we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 20. So we're studying this chapter as a whole, that the chapter goes together, and that the theme of chapter 18 is that the kingdom of heaven is going to consist of people who have been transformed into humble children of God that are still imperfect. A lot of work to be done in all of us, and we'll be talking some about that tonight. And the Lord Jesus is concerned about how those children, the little children that are in his kingdom and part of this church, view each other. And he's really concerned about how we treat each other, how we deal with each other. And so, as we've talked, you know, we said we've got to be careful that we don't offend one of the little ones. That's like the worst thing you can do because it'd be the same as you'd be better off to have a millstone tied around your neck and drowned in the sea. And I couldn't think of a worse way of dying, actually. I'd rather have my head slid off, I think, than dying that way. But, and he said we also, we talked last time about not only shouldn't we offend, but we shouldn't look down on the other little children that are part of our church, our other believers. We shouldn't despise them, he had said, anyone that's joined with us. And we said that it's not only the Lord Jesus Christ's concern, but God is one, and it's also the Heavenly Father's concern. So if you look down in verse 14, he says, Even so, it is not the will of your Father, which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. And we said the father will go to any pains to get one of his little children reclaimed that are his. And he'll climb a mountain. He'll, he'll do whatever it takes. We said he would create a big fish if that's what it takes to get him swallowed just to bring one of his children back to repentance and restoration. And tonight we're going to see that he'll even use us as imperfect as we are to be his instruments to bring somebody back, to bring a strained sheep back to the safety of the rest of the flock. After we get done tonight, and I think maybe even before, if we're honest, we would rather have God use the fish than us, is really the truth of the matter. It'd be a whole lot easier. But let's read. I'm going to concentrate on verses 15 to 20, but just for the context, because really this is all going in together. He's saying, I will seek the stray sheep, but then he's showing... One way that applies is he's going to use us. So we'll pick it up in verse 10 and read through verse 20. And Jesus says, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven, for the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. And what do you think? How think ye? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go into the mountain and seek that which has gone astray? And if so be that he finds it, truly I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one, one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, he says, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he will hear you, you have gained your brother. But if he won't hear you, then take with you one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, then, as a last resort, let him be unto you as a heathen man and a publican. 
Truly I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of, him, of them. So if you'll notice, Jesus has moved from the metaphor or the picture of his people being little children, and he'll no longer say that throughout this chapter, but instead he uses the term brother, or really it could be brother or sister. He's not just limiting it to the men. So he says, if thy brother, and remember, we talked at one point in Genesis 4-9, one of these messages I talked about, God asked Cain, he says, where is your brother Abel? Where is he? And Abel's answer to him is, <laughs> am I my brother's keeper? I don't know where he is. Are you, are you telling me that I'm my brother's keeper? That was his answer. Am I responsible for my brother? And we're going to see here with what we're looking at today, Jesus is clearly telling all of us that, yes, we are responsible for our brothers and sisters. Every one of us is responsible for them. And why do we have that responsibility, you might be asking yourself. That's what I might ask myself. And I think, to begin with, if we really understood what the concept of the church is, biblically, it would, and I'm not going to have time to get into all of what that would be, but just briefly, I'd like to talk about that. If we understood what the concept of the church is, that would kind of make it a little more clear why we have that responsibility. Because being part of a church is not just a matter of coming and hearing messages and taking communion and then going home and going your separate way. And a lot of times, that's for some of us, that's kind of what it's become, I think. But that's not really what a church is all about. It's a lot more than that. So it is coming and hearing messages, hearing the word preached is a vital part of a church. And practicing the ordinances, whether it's baptism or the Lord's Supper, is a vital part of what it means to be a church. You get right down to it, you don't have to have a lot of people, but you need to have the preaching of the word. You need to have the ordinances and church discipline. And I would throw in foot washing as one of the ordinances. That's what it would take to be a church. But you don't have to have 100 people. You could have as few as five if you practice that to be a church. But the Bible gives us a lot of different various metaphors and pictures of what a church is. And so to begin with, Paul says that we are the new temple. It's no longer a temple made of stones like you had in the Old Testament. That's been waylaid. That's been destroyed. We are the temple now, he says. And we're called a house or a building. And we all together here make up this house or building inhabited by the Spirit of God. We together are the temple. Individually, we're considered a temple. But the Bible more often talks about the corporate aspect of that. So all of us here together, all of us as a church, even when we're not together, but those of us that had gathered here and consider ourselves part of Shelbyville Christian Assembly are part of the new temple right here in Shelbyville, a building. And we're like... His brother Hamilton has done a good job of explaining we are like the bricks held together by spiritual mortar, and we help each other grow in that way. And Jesus, we're in Matthew 18, we don't have to turn back, but just a few chapters previous in Matthew 16, he said, it's my church, my ecclesia, my called out ones, called out and brought together, 
my gathered people, an assembly, my assembly. So the church is referred to by Jesus himself as an assembled, his assembled children. And also biblically, the church is known as a flock, God's flock. That's 1 Peter 5, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd of all of us here in this church. He is our chief shepherd. But there's two specific pictures of the church that I think really spell out more our responsibility to each other. And the one picture of that is that we call ourselves the body. A lot of times we'll use that short for Shelbyville Christian Son, what's my body, it's my church. And so if you turn over to 1 Corinthians 12, put something there in Matthew 18, and you read what Paul writes about that, he pretty clearly lays out our responsibility and care that we should have for each other. So 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12, Paul writes, For as the body is one, but that one body has many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body, he says it how many times? For the body is not one member, not, it's not an individualistic thing, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, well, does that make it the case? Is it not therefore of the body? And if the whole body was just an eye, where would then be the hearing? And if the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now has God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it has pleased him. And if they were all one member, where would be the body? But now are there many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, what can it not say? I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, the same thing. I have no need of you. We can't say we don't need each other, and we don't have a responsibility to each other. Verse 22, he says, nay, much more, those members of the body which seem, they seem to be more feeble, he says all, oh, but they're necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness, for our comely parts have no need. But God has tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. And look at here in verse 25. We're saying we have a responsibility to each other. Verse 25, he says that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Now, that seems pretty clear. And whether one member suffers, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. And I think there that pretty clearly says the fact that we should have the same care one for another. I said there was two pictures, two specific pictures that show our responsibility to each other. And the other one we won't turn to, but it's in Ephesians 2.19. And in Ephesians 2.19, we're told that we have now become members of the household of God. And that word for household there means family, or to use a colloquial Kentucky phrase, kin. We're kin to each other. 
So when you have a family, what do you have? You have aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters, don't you? And he's saying, we've now become a member of this family. That as we've heard so many times, it's supposed to be tighter and closer than an actual, your actual blood family because of your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would just say, do we have an earthly responsibility to our brothers and sisters to watch out for them? All of us that have brothers and sisters, I mean, everyone would agree with that, wouldn't they? Well, I hope so. And I would say, you know, a good parent's going to teach their children to watch out for each other. Shouldn't you? We were on vacation here not that long ago, and my wife was in a major trial, so I'm, me and her are stuck in a hotel room, but I told the kids, you know, I don't want you guys to have to stay in here. So we're in a major foreign city. Let me just say that, all right? So I put Thomas in charge, and I'm going to send my kids out there into this big city. <laughs> Could be a little daunting. And I said, hey, you're in charge, Thomas, but I'm thinking he's going to need some help. And I told Michelle, I said, you and Jennifer, you've got to watch, help him watch out for John because it'd be easy for him to get lost on these buses they're getting on or whatever. You've got to watch out for him. Make sure he's okay. Make sure he's getting fed, right? Make sure you're doing everything. And I said, not only that, you all just need to, when you're out there, you just need to watch out for each other because you're brothers and sisters. And not only that, have a good time. <laughs> you know, you're so busy watching out for each other, you forget you're supposed to be having a good time. But they did. They, they all had a good time, and they got back. Everyone's smiling and happy, and, you know, John could have been a little better, I guess, but everybody had a good time. But that's what the Bible's teaching us. That's what God is trying to say to all of us here, that, hey, we need to watch out for each other. They're your brothers and sisters. Watch out. You see somebody's in danger. You see somebody's down. We need to be having some care for each other, don't we? I'll tell you, a lot of times, if you don't talk to people, you don't really realize what they're dealing with a lot of times. And man, they might, maybe they need your prayer, need your encouragement, or maybe they have something that they can encourage you with. So you've got to talk to some different people if it's possible. It really helps out. But I'll tell you where we can really see this responsibility. If you would, turn to a few places tonight, at least at first. If you would turn over to Hebrews 3, I just think some of these are critical for us to see. You turn to Hebrews chapter 3. And I think it's pretty clear here. The point right now is when you join a church, you, you put yourself in, in to have some responsibility, more than just being an independent person that goes home with your family. That's the end of it. It's more than just coming and hearing a word. Joining a church is way more than just coming and hearing messages. So we see that if you look in Hebrews chapter 3 and read verses 12 and 13 and Whoever wrote Hebrews gives this warning. He says, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And so here he's saying, here's a safeguard. He's talking to the brethren. Verse 13, he says, but exhort, challenge, encourage, warn one another. How often, he says, daily, whenever the opportunity is there. Share a verse with somebody. Share, the Lord showed me this. This is how I got, whatever, however it is. There's no rules here. But he says, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest, and here's why, lest any of us be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Because he's saying sin is so deceitful. You may not realize what you're doing has gotten you off on a bad path. And really, you want somebody talking to you about that, don't, don't you? I would. I really would. And there's been times when, you know, you're not doing good and you, maybe you're not reading your Bible enough or praying and somebody just says something to you. Man, it convicts you. They don't really know what they did. But, man, it'd be, just say something to you. Maybe just what's going on with their own life. 
how much they're reading the Bible. And you go into prison, and here's these guys like, you got a verse for me today? I'm like, well, well you know, I didn't read my Bible yet today. And, uh, well, man, you should have a verse for me. I'm like, you're right, I should. I get convicted about that. I should be coming in there with the verse. I mean, I got verses, but I'm saying they're talking like, what have you read today? What have you read this morning? They're coming in here to talk to us. Oh, you know, a couple times like that, you'll make sure you got a verse in your pocket. So let's look over a few chapters back at Hebrews 10. We'll see something along the same lines. So we're saying we have a responsibility to care for each other and help each other out. So Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. Now, actually, this is kind of the lettuce section. You like lettuce on your hamburgers? Well, there's a lot of lettuce in here from verses 22 on through 24. There's three of them. But I want to start in verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised, and in verse 24, he says, let us consider one another. He's saying, let us think of ways that one another to provoke unto love and to good works. He's saying, let us think of ways that we can stir up one another, your brothers and sisters, for a good cause, that they can be involved in good works and love. And that's a responsibility that we have to each other. And how many times do we think that way? Is that in our thought process? That's not typically the way we approach our fellowship all the time, is it, necessarily? But it should be, I think. It'd be a good thing to do. And I think with some people, it's kind of changing that way, for, you know, which I think is a blessing. So if you go back to Matthew 18, like I said, the, the point I'm trying to make, and maybe belaboring, is that if you've joined a church, our church, Specifically, you are now a member of a body. You're a member of a household, and we no longer have the right to do that scripturally. I'd say we scripturally no longer have a right to live independent lives. You could just be on your own, doing your own thing. Well, I show up for church, and that's the end of it. I don't really know how you could do that. And according to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we now have a responsibility that if we see somebody erring or straying, we have a responsibility to go speak to them. And all of them, all of them, not just the ones we like. You know, it's tend to go to the ones in your group or tend to go to the ones in your age group. But we have a responsibility to each other, all of us, across the board. Because remember we read in Corinthians, he said that the members of the church, of the body, should have the same care one for another. So if we see anybody, even if it's a young, one of these teenage boys, during it, they can get in trials, and you sit back in that corner and they sit up here, but if we know that's going on, I'm not pointing for any reason, then we need to be praying for them. Or if somebody that's not part of your group, they get blessed, I mean, we should be rejoicing with them, right? And also, if you happen to see somebody that maybe is not somebody you've been best friends with at church, but you know they're a member of the body that you're a member of, and you see them off onto some kind of sin, or you realize just something's not right there, we have, all have a responsibility, don't we? I think that's what we're talking about. And that's what the answer we're going to see tonight. Jesus gives us the answer to that. So Jesus knew that we are just dumb sheep, and he knew we were going to stray. And he also knew that within our relationships that conflicts are going to arise, and they have, and they will. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Conflicts are going to arise between us, 
and they need to be resolved in the right way. And so that's what we have here. He's given us the steps to resolve them. And so the first thing we read, we're back in Matthew 18, I think, aren't we? In verse 15, he says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee. And I'll read that, and he says, and you go to him, and if, if it was me, I'd slam the brakes on. At that point, I'm going to do what? And I think before that happens, there needs to be a little thought put in to making that step. You're going to go to somebody that sinned against you. So I read some things an experienced pastor wrote, and I thought they were some good points I'd like to elaborate on. And so the first thing he says, if thy brother shall trespass, the word is trespass or sin or miss the mark. And I'd say the first thing we need to do before we go rushing in to deal with somebody else's sin is we need to identify what that sin is and make sure it is a sin and it is a sin that needs to be confronted. So, you know, somebody has a one-time slip of the tongue. This isn't necessarily going to apply or they get angry like one time or something, or just somebody just annoys you by the way they are. That's, this isn't what this applies to. We're not talking about that. Or you have some kind of petty grievance like somebody sitting in Mr. Rudy's seat, and then he pulls out his Bible. I'm going to start Matthew 18 right now with you, my friend, because this has been my seat for 30 years. So he's not talking about stuff like that, obviously. I mean, I could make up some silly things, or, you know, you use an NIV translation, and you, I need to talk to you about that. No, you don't. You don't need to talk to him about that. So the question then would be, well, what sins qualify? What, what sins qualify that would be here? Well, I think 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, you don't have to turn to that, would be a good place to start because he says there if people are engaged in this in an active, presently active way that it's, you're not to fellowship with them. And what does he talk about there? He talks about drunkenness. And with drunkenness, I would include drug use like smoking marijuana, LSD, whatever kids are doing now. I think that would be a good sin that would qualify for this. What about stealing? What about somebody steals from you, doesn't pay their bills? I think that would fall into a category of something you would need to go talk to somebody. Covetousness. What about fornication? You know, somebody's involved with that or looking at pornography. I think that would fall in this category. Adultery. Someone is a homosexual, and you think, not in our group. Well, I'll tell you what, when I was part of a group up in Columbus, I had a couple people that got involved in homosexual activity in their 20s that I wished I had a little better teaching on this because one of them was somebody I roomed with and found out about that, and he didn't try anything on me, but I would have, should have talked to him early on, and maybe things could have been. Instead, he just fell away from the faith, and I never did talk to him. As far as I know, he's still falling away from the faith. So I'd say homosexual behavior would fall into that category. 2 Corinthians 12, I add some more sins. Anger, outburst, somebody that is just constantly losing it. So I'm not talking about a one-time thing, but that is like the way they are to where they're a powder keg, and you're afraid to smoke around them because you're going to blow up with them. <laughs> if you know what I mean? Outburst of anger. Or how about gossip, malicious gossip, which what gossip is not malicious? I think that would fall into that category. Or what about slander? And then in Proverbs 6, I might throw a few more in from there because God says there's seven things that are, are an abomination to him. Like habitual lying. So you know somebody that's lying to you constantly. And God says that's an abomination. I think that might work. That might fall into that category. Or hatred or deceit. Or 
What about somebody that is constantly sowing discord among the brethren? That's the last of the seven things that the Lord names. So could that possibly be something that might, you might need to talk to somebody about, a trespass? I think those would qualify about what Jesus was talking about. Then the second thing, though, I think when we think, well, this person's doing something that I think maybe I need to talk to them about, the next thing I would do personally was I would take then a look at myself before I talk to them. Because what did Jesus say in Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5? So that judgment there is not a judgment where you're discerning somebody's fruit, but that is a person that is like a Pharisee. Harsh, critical, unloving, unmerciful, self-righteous judgment. He says, don't do that. That's the problem. Because it says, if you do that, you're going to receive the same in return from him. So I would make sure before I approach somebody that that wasn't the spirit and the manner that I was going to approach them. Because the Pharisees, that's who he accused that of, them of. And they were not in approaching anybody and especially the Lord, they were never seeking the good of others, were they? Critical and unloving. When Jesus says that in Matthew 7, as far as how to approach somebody and get the speck out of their eye, he's not bringing in anything new. All he's doing is he's basically summarizing what's back in the Old Testament law. And I'd like you to see that because I'll tell you what, they, the Old Testament law explains this better than I am right now. So if you would turn back to Leviticus 19... Put something once again in Matthew 18, please. In Leviticus 19, I'd like to look at this. So we don't like the law, a lot of people. I'm not under the law. Well, sometimes the law has some good advice, and it says it's okay to use the law lawfully. Leviticus 19. So we have to deal with others in a loving manner. And Leviticus 19.15 says this. It says, you shall do no unrighteousness in your judgment. And he explains that by saying, don't have respect to persons. So it's not like, well, I'll go rebuke this brother that's poor because he's nothing. But this other person here that's got a little stature in the body, I see them doing the same thing, but I'm not, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to get them upset with me. And that's what he's saying here. He says, you shall have no respect of person of the poor, nor honor the persons of the mighty. He says, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. And he says here... And we'll talk about this in light of what he's saying here in Matthew 18. But he says, you shall not go up and down as a talebearer. Don't you go up and down amongst the people repeating all the sins you're seeing people commit. Neither shall you stand against the blood of your neighbor, for he says, I am the Lord. In verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall in any wise rebuke your neighbor and not allow sin upon him. So he's saying, you can't rebuke him in a bad spirit. You can't hate him and rebuke him. So he's saying you need to do it with good intentions and for his good. That's what it's saying there in verse 17. And he says in verse 18, You shall not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. And here's where it is. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So we should approach somebody that we see as sinning or straying just like we would want to be approached. That's what he's saying. Would you want, if that was you, would you want to know that they have spread this all across the land before they talk to you? Would you want that? I wouldn't. And that's what he's saying. We shouldn't do that. Rebuke a brother in love and not self-righteousness. So 
In Matthew 7, Jesus is not saying that we can't get the speck out of our brother's eye. It needs to come out. Because that speck, you get a speck in your eye driving down the road, it could, it could make you, you're going the wrong direction, swerving off the road. So it needs to come out. But he's saying we better examine ourselves first and make sure that we're not being a hypocrite and that our spirit is right when we deal with them. And that's what we just read there in Leviticus 19. I mean, the law is pretty good, isn't it? I think so when you read that. And so if you'll go there from Leviticus over to Galatians, we'll see the same principle here in the New Testament. Galatians 6, 1 to 3. Got to go to our brothers if we're going to correct them. So this is all needs to take place before we start here in step one of Matthew 18. And Paul writes this to the Galatians, familiar verse. Brethren, if any man be overtaken, and that word overtaken means you're caught in a trespass. You were kind of caught off your guard is what that word means. But if any man be overtaken in a fault, he says, you which are spiritual, restore such a one. How? In a spirit of meekness, doing what? Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Why? Because if a man thinks himself to be something, oh man, I'm spiritual, I'm going to go around and straighten everybody else out. When he is nothing, he deceives himself. And so what does it mean to be spiritual? What does that mean to be spiritual? He which is spiritual. Let of the Spirit. I like this quote this man had. He said, the Holy Spirit does not lead believers to speak evil of others or to be self-righteous fault finders or harsh critics. So a spiritual person is not going to approach somebody that is overtaken by a fault with that type of attitude. You're going to have a good attitude about it. And the other thing that this man said that while we're looking at ourselves, we should be in much prayer before we go to that brother. And in doing that, so you see that, hey, I see this person has a fault. I believe the Lord wants me to go. It's a sin. I need to talk to him about. You've examined yourself. I think my heart's right about this. But also, you should be also praying that God give me the wisdom to know what to say and how to say it and to say it the right way. That's where I'd be. James 1.5, if any of you lack wisdom... And I would need wisdom. Personally, I would need a lot of wisdom in that. Some people could just do it. No big deal. Me, I would need a lot of wisdom to say it the right way and not get too nervous, whatever all else. It says in James 1.5, this is a great promise. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And it says in James 5, God gives generously and he won't get on your case for asking. So you're like, man, I'm just not street smart enough to know how to go talk to people about stuff like that. I've never done this before. James 1.5, it's right there. God says, just ask me and just trust. When you start speaking, I will give you what to say and maybe the, help you think it through a little bit before you get there. And he says, I'll give to you generously, and I'm not going to get on you for asking. Like, man, you should know what to say to this guy. Well, Lord, I don't. And God said, I won't talk to you like that. I'll be glad to help you out. Because he wants it to work out better than we do. And we also need to be in prayer. So we're saying we're praying to examine ourselves, praying that God gives us wisdom. I think we also need to be praying that we can approach this person gently and in meekness. Because that is not easy. And he says that we should restore such a person in meekness, in the spirit of meekness. Second Timothy 2, which is another 
first talking about correcting someone. It says, the servant of the Lord must not strive, must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, able to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So if you come on too strong, too harsh, they won't be able to receive a word of what you say. And he says, no, the goal is this person's, they're being snared by the devil and don't even realize it. And so the manner you talk to them will be, enable them to receive what you're saying. And if peradventure you come at, you talk to them in the right way, approach them in the right way, then maybe God can give them repentance because you haven't shut that door through your manner, through the way you talk to them. The person that you confront, that you see in an sin, will likely be defensive. That's just a natural reaction. And also the fact that they're in a sin probably means that they're not in a good place spiritually. So I would say don't be surprised if they react in anger. Because I'll tell you, when I go into prison and you talk one-on-one with these prisoners that they're not Christians and you, the Holy Spirit convicts them, the first reaction is anger. That's what happens. That's the first defense that goes up, and it happens that way a lot with us. And so when that happens, when they respond in anger, it's easy to come back in frustration. And so we need to remember Proverbs 51, a soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. And I'll tell you, I I know from experience that is way easier said than done when talking to people. It really is. It's easy to get caught up in the moment. It's easy to get caught up because a lot of times there's spirits manifesting in those people. And it's easy to get caught up into all that. And, re- and you, next thing you know, it's a war going on and everything's defeated. And you walk away thinking, man, I never intended that to happen. And I feel like I blew it. So that's where prayer is really important. The other thing, too, so you're praying about this, this situation. Should I go talk to this person? And you've got this hesitation inside of you. Well, don't just ignore that, but you need to examine. What, what is this going on inside of me? And what you need to see is, am I hesitant to go talk to this person because I'm afraid? I'm afraid of how they'll react, and I just don't want to have to deal with that. Or you have to discern, is it the Holy Spirit that's checking me and saying, no, not right now, maybe. Or maybe what you're doing isn't right. So it's got to take your time. And I know some people will be like, well, my, the Holy Spirit's giving me a permanent check in my spirit because I'm never doing what you're saying. And that would be a temptation, right? We just have to be honest about what's going on here. Honest with ourselves. Is is it because I'm just afraid or is it the Lord checking me? Be honest about it. And I'd say don't rush to do anything, but be prayerful. But if God is telling you, here's a situation that I've shown you between you and this person sinned against you, then you've got to meet your responsibility if he's wanting you to do that. And you just have to trust him that he'll give you the right spirit the wisdom, and the courage to be a man or woman of God and do what you need to do. (laughs) And in doing that, what are we doing? We're just following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the epitome of love, and he had to confront some people at times, didn't he? He did, and that took courage. He was a man just like us. So back in Matthew 18, 15, So once we've done all that, what I just said there, assessed it as sin, needs to be addressed, examined ourselves, and been in prayer about the matter, I think then we need to see if all of that's lining up, we don't have an option. 
of whether we're going to obey the Lord or not. In a sense we do, but in a sense we really don't. Because look what he says. He says, if your brother shall trespass against you, what's the next word? The next word is go. And that is a command. That verb is in the command form. It's not an option. So your brother sins against you, you don't have an option. You've got to go deal with it. And it'll take courage. And for two reasons, here's why. And it gives it right there. Because number one, we are going to have to meet that person that we feel like we need to talk to about their sin face to face. Because look what he says. He says, go, and then the next is another command. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. And that means you don't do it by text. You don't do it by email. And unless you can't avoid it, you don't do it by a telephone call. But it's between you and him alone or her. And that means face to face. You need to talk to that person. And alone is significant, too, because you know what that's telling us? That's telling us you haven't been talking to everybody else in church about it. It's just between you and that person alone. Because to go around and talk about somebody's sin or fault, even if it's true, do you know what that's called? Slander. And slander's not a good thing. God's not smiling on that. Listen, this, this Psalm 50 this right here, this has put the fear of God in me more than once. But Psalm 50, verses 20 to 21, it says this. God's speaking through the psalmist. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's sons. These things you have done, and I kept silent. And so the person's misreading God's silence. He says, you thought I was altogether such a one as yourself. But God says, I will reprove you and state my case before your face. So how many times we've all done that? All of us have failed here. I think every single person. But does that make it right? We need to get it right, don't we? And I'll tell you, John Wesley and the Methodists, those people were, I mean, he preached hard against gossip and slander. And those people didn't speak evil one of another. They might not have had everything right in their theology, but those people did not gossip and talk about each other behind their back. They would practice Matthew 18, and if they had a problem with somebody, they talked to them directly and got it straightened out. And they had some true love between themselves back in his day. Because we've all failed because our flesh, think about it, and we're all, let's just be honest, our flesh loves to complain about what somebody else has done to us and look for sympathy from other people, right? And it takes courage, doesn't it? It takes courage to not do that and to go and talk to somebody face to face. But here's the other side of that too that is important for us to think about. It also, when you know that someone will come between you and him alone, what does that do? It builds trust, doesn't it? So I know, if I know this person, I know the way they are, and I've seen the way they've dealt with others, and I know he's coming to me to talk to me, but I know that he has not gone around and talked to anybody else. He loves me enough that he will come and talk to me. I will have trust with that person, wouldn't I? Versus if I know this person goes around and they're constantly talking about everybody's business and personal problems with everybody else, it's going to be hard for me to want to talk with them and open up to them and receive from them, isn't it? Because you're afraid they're going to hurt you. And so that's why it's important that it's between you and that person alone. If I can trust that you'll speak to me in private and speak to me kindly, I can receive that kind of correction. All of us can. And I think we need to have more of that, don't we? Amen. Because 
that trust begins to develop and we know that that's the way we deal with each other, then we'll open up and there's when communication starts and we can receive an admonition or a correction or an ex exhortation from a brother or a sister because we know they're doing it for our good. Because communication's built on trust in that way, isn't it? Whether it's your husband and wife or in a church. And the second read is it's going to take courage is because it involves that very thing. Tell him his fault. <laughs> and you could just hear the person in your mind as you're setting up this appointment or you're going to meet them to tell them their fault. You could just hear their reaction before you ever open your mouth. Who do you think you are? I guess you're sinless. Who do you think you are? Think you're perfect? And from your side, you're probably thinking, man, I wish I was anybody than me right now because this is probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. That's probably what you're thinking to yourself. And so it'll take courage because that word for tell him his fault, it's a word of confrontation. It expresses a disapproval of somebody's action. You're telling him something you've done is not right. And commonly in the New Testament, it's where we get our word for reprove. And so to reprove somebody that is in a fault is going to take the courage of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, where are you getting that from? I'm telling you, John the Baptist. Because listen, Luke 3.19, it says this, when Herod the Tetrarch was reproved, it's the same word here as tell him his fault. It's the same word. That, that word could have been translated reprove him in Matthew 18. It's the same word. But Herod the Tetrarch, he was reproved by John the Baptist on account. Here's what he had to go talk to Herod about. Herodias, his brother's wife, He's got to tell this guy, you are sinning against the law. You are half Jew. You should have known this, Mr. Herod. And not only that, he said, on account of all the wicked things which Herod had done. He's going to Herod and he's reproving him for all of his sins, being in leadership position. And you think that didn't take courage? So, I mean, what do you think? Do you guys do the account? Do you think Herod thanked John for his loving kindness and reproof? Now, the next thing we read is, he shut up John in prison. That was his reaction. Shut up John in prison. And eventually, what do we know happened? It cost him his head. Obeying the Lord, reproving somebody, cost John the Baptist his head. And I think sometimes you feel like if I go talk to this person about something they're doing, I'm going to lose my head too. Right? So it took courage for John the Baptist. What about Nathan the prophet? He was a good friend of David. They liked each other. And you think that didn't take him some courage? Now, there's a brother talking to a brother there, talking to the king, his friend. You think that didn't take some courage for Nathan? And what did Nathan do, though? You don't read about Nathan going around spreading things. No, he went to David one-on-one -on -one as a man and talked to him face-to-face. -face. So the question is, are we going to obey the Lord with what we read here, no matter how hard it may seem? I preached a message one time in prison, and the title of it was, Christianity is not for cowards. And it's not. It really isn't. Because if you think, you read Revelation 21.8, and he gives the list of everyone that's going in the lake of fire, and you know who tops the list? The fearful. It's a sin to be fearful and not obey the Lord. No matter how hard it is, what he's asking us to do. And so really, it all boils down to, whose favor do we want the most? Do we want God's favor or man's favor? And it's not always easy. I understand that. It's not always easy. 
But what's the goal of, of this? What's the goal of this one-on-one -on -one confrontation? And we see that at the end of verse 15. He says, you go and tell him his fault between thee and him, and praise God if he'll listen to you. What has happened? He says, you have gained your brother. So the goal of all this is not for the Lord to see how much emotional pain he can put you through that you have to go confront somebody. That is not the goal. The goal is to gain your brother because we got to tie this all in together. What has the Lord said? He is going to have to seek that strange sheep. And how is he going to do that? Through us. We are his hands and feet and mouth on this earth now. So that's where we have got to have the love and responsibility, even if that sheep is going to kick you when you're trying to help bring him back. We've got to be willing to put up with that for their good and, that, and obedience to the Lord. That is real love there. It really is. Through us, seeking that little one. If we're faithful to that, even if it's a rough going to do that, that one-on-one -on -one confrontation, God will reward us. We'll be rewarded. So listen, James 5, 19 to 20 says this, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one converts him, somebody comes and turns him, let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sin. I mean, what a blessing. You didn't want to do that, and you're like, man, I don't want to have to listen to this. It's going to be really tough to do. But the Bible says you'll save a soul from death. You'll save one of those little ones from an eternal hell because you had the courage and believed God to help get you through that. So a brother blows up. I've had face-to-faces with several people. I don't make it my business to go do that, but a brother blows up and... A lot of times they will. But you know what happens? That's the initial reaction. You know what most people do? They, if they're a Christian especially, they may get defensive and blow up, but they'll, they'll be inside thinking about what you said if you say it in the right way. And you know what happens? It's very likely they're going to change down the road. And so you had to put up with that initial uncomfortable situation, but for their good, they turned down the road, and praise God, you saved somebody from eternal death. That is a blessing. It really is. And God believe God will reward you in a lot of ways. So let's move on. I mean, what if, though, you do all that and that one-on-one -on -one approach doesn't work? And I think it will work more than we think it will if it's done the right way. But the next step is verse 16 there. And if you'll notice there, it says, But if he shall not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, than in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And what you need to notice, though, is at this point, it is still a very small number of people that are involved. If you haven't been spreading it around and, and you've talked to them yourself and that didn't work, at this point, at the most, you're going to have four people involved in this person's life and character. And that's the reason that's that way. Because if the person does repent, their character's not all over where everybody's looking at that person and thinking, man, that guy right there, he'll steal, steal from you blind. The less people that know that, if a person repents, the better, right, I think, or whatever, whatever the sin is, and that's why we're down to he's keeping it as few as possible, two or three, and there's, there's several reasons for that two or three witnesses, and here's one thing, you bring two or three people, they will have heard the case, so you go to them and you say, hey, I've got this guy that's done this to me, and you, you pick your two or three witnesses, and let me just tell you what's happened, so they have heard that case. And at that point, they may say, hey, wait a minute, you know, you, you shouldn't have done that. That wasn't worth you going and talking to him and causing all this trouble over. 
Or they may say, well, I think well, what you're saying, there's something to this. And we need to have a meeting. But all the facts can become more clear. In the case, maybe it can get settled. You just have that two or three people there, and that happens. And maybe it could get, just get settled with those two or three people. That would be the ideal thing, right? They hear both sides, and they get it settled, and everything comes out. But what happens also, another aspect of it with the two or three, if he is clearly wrong, this person that you say has sinned, and the witnesses can see it, and he's not going to repent, it'll be established in the right way before it goes public. And that's the point of that. Before it goes to the church. So you want things to be right before it goes to the church, because once it goes to the church, it's, it's out there. And it's more than just two or three or four people knowing about it. It's, it's going to be a problem. It has to be done right. And that principle was also, I'm not going to make you turn back there, that was also laid out in the Old Testament law. Because Deuteronomy 19.15 says, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity. So he's, in the Old Testament law, you couldn't stand in front of the congregation of Israel, one person, and accuse somebody of sin. You couldn't do that. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sins. But the Lord said in Deuteronomy 19, At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. So before it goes public, then it would be in Israel, and here it would be before the church. It has got to be established by at least two or three witnesses, not just by one person standing up in our church and making a public accusation against somebody. That is not right. That's not the way the Lord has laid things out there. And if it was me, the people I would pick to be my two, because it doesn't say who you have to pick. It doesn't say it has to be the pastor or a deacon. It can be anybody. But if it was me, my two or three witnesses would be somebody that was above reproach, somebody that everyone I knew recognized to have integrity and that they were honest. And so that might not be your best friend at church. You want to get somebody that everybody's going to say, hey, they have got a good reputation. I can trust what they're saying. If they've heard this case and come to this conclusion, Two or three of them, it's pretty certain that that's the way it is, and that's the way it should be. But that takes us down to, if that doesn't work, verse 17, if he neglects to hear them, that's not working. Well, then he says, tell it unto the church, and that is a last resort. And if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and as a publican. And I think generally if the first two steps are followed, with prayer and in the right spirit, it's almost always going to work. But if it gets to this point here, what we need to understand is bringing it before the church. And how many times have we done that with things? Point of that then, even bringing it before the church, is to have a public condemnation of this person going through that sin. It's not. It's that the whole church, what does it say? That the whole church shall hear the matter. Let them hear it. Hear the matter and all agree, they all need a need to agree then that this sinning member needs to repent. So they've heard the situation, they've heard what's happened, they've heard the two or three witnesses is brought before the church, and they agree that person needs to repent. The point of that is, that should have an effect on someone if they are a Christian. That it's not just one person, it's just not a couple of, you might consider them his friends, but all of your Christian brothers and sisters have heard the whole case. And they all agree that you are in sin and need to repent. 
And I mean, man, if that's the case, how are all those people going to be wrong? I mean, I guess anything's possible, but that should have an effect on that sinning person, shouldn't it? Man, it would me. Because otherwise, you're standing up and saying everybody that's a member of this church and serving the Lord Jesus, they've all got it wrong. Should have an effect. But if that doesn't, and it doesn't always, there's been cases when it hasn't, then that sinning member, it says, needs to be put out of the church, excommunicated and treated as a person that doesn't know the Lord, that's acting like a heathen. That's what he's saying there. And we talked about that when, a few weeks back when we taught on 1 Corinthians 5, that the church has the authority to decide and declare that this person, we once considered them a brother and sister, but by the way they are acting now, we no longer consider them to be a brother or sister any longer. And he's given us that authority here, Jesus is in Matthew 18. And so we as a church have the power and authority to receive somebody into our fellowship or to exclude them. And not just because we don't have something against them, we don't like them for no reason, but based on their fruit is how that decision is made. And so in verse 18, he says, Verily I say unto you, the church, whatsoever you shall bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we talked about that when we taught on 1 Corinthians 5, and that binding, you're declaring that that person is forbidden in this church based on his conduct. And the loosing, you're saying this person is permitted to enter or stay based on their profession of faith and their repentance or their conduct. It's all based on their conduct. We're not judging their motives. It's all based on their fruit. And so as I said last time, this the Greek, it's future perfect verbs are used. And so the, the church is only declaring what God has already declared in heaven. We're simply being guided by what God says in his word, what he's already determined. And so it could be translated and really should be, in my opinion, Truly I say unto you, whatsoever you bind on earth shall have been bound already, already bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed already. And so not all the translations translate it that way for whatever the reason is, but the New American Standard does, the NET translation, Young's Literal Translation, and the Holman Christian Standard Bible are four versions that do, that I know of, that translate it that way. And so verses 19 and 20 say this. He says, Jesus ends by saying again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And he's saying that if this act is agreed upon to put this person out as a heathen and a publican by the church, and it doesn't matter, he's saying there, whether it's just a three-people church, a nine-people church, or a 2,000-member church. It doesn't matter. That it will be done by the Father in heaven. And I, Jesus is saying, I will be there in the midst of however big that church is. I will be there in the midst to ratify that discipline that's going on by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we talked about last time. That's what Paul told the church of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 5, 4, he told them, so we're talking here about the church gathers together, and he says you're declaring a sentence on a person, a declaration of discipline over somebody that, won't, that is unrepentant. And Paul told the church, that's what he told them in 1 Corinthians 5, 4. He said, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, 
and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. So according to Paul, when that happened, the Lord Jesus Christ was present and was there to deliver that person over to Satan, he said. So this is not just something we decide because well, I never liked that guy. He was a troublemaker to begin with. I'm just glad to get rid of him. No, it's not like that. There's no personal spite at all about it. In fact, actually, we should have a heart to where we want to see them repent and be restored. That's what everything we're talking about is. I found this example taken from this book on church discipline that I read recently of a businessman and a contractor. It went through all these steps. Now, here's a practical way it worked out. And so we got a lot of contractors in here, so it might hit home. So this guy's saying his people, there's a conflict between these two, two Christian businessmen that go to the same church, Carl and Jim. And Carl is a big money, influential businessman in the community. And Jim is just, he's just a building contractor. He has a building business. And so Carl asked Jim to put a foundation and to frame up a new house that he wanted to move into. And so Jim's company gets finished with the job. They do a good job, and he sends Carl a bill for the work that they had agreed to. And months later, he's never received any payment, hadn't heard anything from Carl. So Jim calls Carl, and Carl won't return his phone calls. And Jim's company now is in financial straits. He can't pay his worker because he needs the money. And so finally he gets hold of Carl, and Carl's like, well, man, I've got financial problems with my business too. I'm sorry, I can't help you out. I can't pay you either. So a few weeks later, Jim not because he was gossiping, not because he was snooping around Carl's business, but in an unusual way, he finds out that Carl all along has had the money to pay him in his own personal savings, or he could have used investments. He had enough investments, more than enough, to cover paying him, but he doesn't want to use those funds. And so Jim goes to him and he says, hey, I understand that you have the money that you could pay me, and Carl just blows up. He gets outraged and demands the notice. He says, man, how did you find that out? What are you doing snooping around my personal affairs? He refuses to pay him. He says, man, you have no business messing with my personal. I'm not going to pay you. But here's the thing. At church, here we're fast forwarding. These guys are still both going to the same church, and Carl sings in the choir. He participates in a men's Bible study. But guess who he won't talk to anymore? Jim. He ignores him when he sees him. And he claims that Jim is unethical. And their business deal went south. It had nothing to do that he wasn't willing to pay. It was just the economy. And he's not too worried about the fact that he knows Jim is upset and is offended. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that if you know somebody's offended with you, don't wait for them to come to you. You need to go to them. Uh, Carl's not going to do that. That doesn't seem to, to matter to him. Not going to take any initiative. And he also seems to be <laughs> unconcerned that Jesus also said, if that's the case, someone's offended and you haven't taken care of it, you may as well not even bother worshiping because God's not listening. You need to take care of that. He's got unconfessed sin and a conflict result. So what should old Jim do? Jim's already talked to him once. And I say this was a case for Matthew 18. Jim's got to have a face-to-face -face meeting. That's what happens with Carl. So he needs to get this payment issue resolved, and also they have a personal relationship now that is severely damaged. And so they have this face-to-face -face meeting, Jim and Carl, like what we see here, what we've been reading about in Matthew 18, and it doesn't go well at all. And so all Carl wants to talk about is the fact that, man, this guy you got in my personal business, my personal finances, and that is unethical. And he accuses Jim of being a gossip. 
and by sinning against him by telling others about his financial situation, which Jim didn't do, by the way, but that's what Carl accuses him of. And Jim, when they talk, he insists that Carl sinned against him by not paying that bill that he legitimately owed him. And so both of them just leave this meeting, this first time meeting, upset and frustrated with the way it turned out. But Carl's mind, he's like, man, I'm done with this. It's over with. And I'm not bringing it up again, and it's all over with. And so what should Jim do? He's still upset. Should he just drop it and just, quote, unquote, overcome? Because I think that would be the easy way out, and that's what a lot of times we've tended to do. But we're back to, would that be obedience to Jesus' command in Matthew 18? So he decides he's going to obey Matthew 18. Jim does it. He asks another businessman and one of the church elders to go with him to speak to Carl. They're sitting here watching all this, and they have this second meeting where the two or three are gathered, and he tells Carl he sinned against him by not paying the bill and refusing. He was willing to do a payment plan. Carl's like, I'm not going to do that either, refusing to do that. And Carl says, Jim, you are just a whiner with these guys watching. He says, you're just a whiner. You don't understand that everybody in business takes a loss, and you should too. And he says, you're just a malicious gossip. And then he adds this in this time, and not only that, but your work was lousy. Well, Jim knows that wasn't true, and it wasn't true, but he throws that in. And so here these two guys are, these two witnesses, are they're listening, and they don't say a word, but after all this is done, then they speak. And they both agree that Jim has been sinned against by Carl by not paying that bill. And he's wrong for putting everything on Jim, putting all this situation on Jim. And they also point out that not only that, but Jim's employees aren't being paid, and they're suffering as a result of Carl's sin and the failure. And so they rebuke him for what he's done. And they say, you should be laying out a plan, at least lay out a plan to pay Jim as soon as possible. All of this is done from Jim's side and these people. They're speaking to him in gentle, loving tones. They're not yelling at him. They're not confronting him in a bad way or all that. And this guy's, at this point, old Carl, he refuses. He says, I am not paying this bill. And not only that, I'm getting a lawyer. And I'm going to sue this church for slander and whatever else. And I'm going to make sure this church has nothing but trouble. They're going to keep this up. So these guys say, well, we're not going to be intimidated to not obey the Lord because of his threats. And so <laughs> they call the elders and have a special meeting of the church. But before they even do that, one of the elders, before they call a special meeting of the church, calls Carl up and begs him, pleads with him to please reconsider and to repent and to make things right. And he's like, I'm just telling you, Carl says, I'm telling you, a lawsuit's coming your all's way. That's his only answer, totally unrepentant. So the church convenes just like this, and Jim's there and Carl's there. Carl actually comes to the meeting. He's in attendance. And Jim and the two witnesses, they present the case before the church. And questions and comments come from the different members of the church as that case is presented before them. But as the evening goes on, they're saying they realize that Carl was in the wrong, totally. He was the one wrong and for not paying his bill and his attitude towards his brothers. Carl the whole time never says a word, but you know who speaks up for him? His family. They stand up and defend him, saying he's been done wrong, all based on what Carl told him. So the congregation gave Carl two weeks to repent. And people in the church, they called him and just, you know, Carl, we love you. We just want you to get things right and repent. They sent him letters. Businessmen took him out to lunch and pled with him to repent. He refused all of it. And him and his family left that church. 
And so the church, they had to disfellowship him. They did, he was considered, they did what it says here in Matthew. They followed all the steps. But here's the final outcome. It wasn't bad because at some point the children realized that what they had done was wrong and that Carl was wrong. And they repented. His children repented. And they went and asked those elders for forgiveness. And the church restored the family members to that church. And you know what? That, the Holy Spirit had been dealing with Carl. This went on for months. And when his family did that, it just really had a major effect on him and just struck him. He realized how wrong he was. And so finally, through this process and things being done the way they were, he repented and went back and apologized, got things right with Jim. He paid Jim off. He apologized to the elders and repented and told the whole church that he knew he was wrong. He was wrong, stood in front of them and told them that. And, and those relationships were all restored, including the one with Jim, between Carl and Jim. But mainly, his relationship with the Lord was restored. That was the main thing. And so, you know, you listen to all that and you say, man, that sounds like a mess. Have to go through all of that. Well, did we just not talk about what we just read? That was how it was all practically worked out. <laughs> it's what the Lord commands. And things are always going to be messy like that. Listen, go back and read 1 Corinthians 6. You think 1 Corinthians 6 wasn't messy? I think it was because we got one brother in a church is going to take another brother to law. And Paul is like, what are you all doing? You're, you're going to take another brother in the Lord and you're going to take them before an unbeliever's unbelievers. He's like, wait a minute. You shouldn't be doing that. We're Christians. We're supposed to be peacemakers. And you all are fighting and you're bringing your fight out in public. He says, get the least, whoever you think are the least members, the least people in here, and let them be the one to judge this case, is what he tells them. Bring it before and let them decide. And if you don't like that idea, just eat it. Just take the wrongs, what Paul tells them. Just suffer the wrong and do what we've been taught here for years. Just trust the Lord. Somebody did you wrong and you know they did and they're not going to admit it, then just trust the Lord. He'll make it up to you, right? So it's messy. Thinking of that situation that Jim and Carl, you go through situations with another member of a church like that, someone you're a member of a church with. You know what the hardest thing to do is when it's all said and done? Forgiveness to forgive that other person, to embrace that person that you feel and know, maybe don't even feel it, they have done you wrong. That, I think, is be the hardest part about that whole thing. So we just need to remember this, though, about all of us in here. There are times when our brothers and sisters in here, they can be strong, and over the period of time, all of us get in a bad way spiritually and do things and say things that typically we wouldn't do. And so we may need to have to deal with that situation with somebody else. And we need to deal with them in love and not give up on them because they're going through a bad time spiritually. And you're like, well, man, he did me wrong. Well, yeah, well, you know he's not doing too good spiritually. He's having, for whatever reason that is. So we've got to be willing to forgive. And that is going to be next week's message. It all ties in. Everything in here, the Lord has it. The whole chapter ties in. We should never have problems that go to this extent between members in a church. But listen, here's the thing. It happened in the early church, didn't it? And it's happened in ours. It will happen in the future, right? 
we're looking at this tonight because we need to know how we should deal with situations if they come up like that. We need to remember, you're like, man, that sounds messy, face-to-face -face confrontations and all that. I, I just always, I hate confrontations. I want to avoid them, you say to yourself. Remember this, Galatians chapter 2. Who had to confront who face-to-face? -face? Paul had to publicly confront Peter, two of the pillars in the church. And not only that, they were friends. They were friends. And he had to have the courage to talk to Peter about a situation that wasn't right. He's, he's withdrawn from the Gentiles. He publicly said, I, he had to tell him, you, what you're doing is wrong. It's a sin, Peter. And that took humility on both of their parts. I'm sure Paul did not want to do that. And I'm sure Peter, man, that guy's always having to eat dust, right? And so both of them would have had to forgive each other, wouldn't they? Because listen, they were friends. They weren't enemies after that. And that meant that confrontation went on. They hugged and at every point, and they got along. They forgave each other as brothers, remained friends. So just the last sentence here, just need to get back to, I keep saying it, we're all a work in progress, aren't we? And we all need each other for our own sanctification. And part of that is having courage to do things that are uncomfortable and doing them in the right way and in the right spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you once again, Lord, for this word that you've given us and the direction you've given us and that all of your word is breathed out and it gives us instruction in righteousness, telling us the right way to live before you. Because if we didn't have these scriptures, Lord, we would never think these things up on our own. We would never know what to do. So we thank you that your way is the right way. It is the best way and it will have the best results in the end. And you've ordained this as a means that we can help each other. If we see each other stray, we can help bring each other back into the fold and we can manifest your forgiveness and your love towards others. And we just thank you, Father, for showing us that today in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.